0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good
1: morning, ladies and the gentlemen. government. Welcome to a veteran story. I, I kind of like I'm your host Pete Mecca on AmericasWebRadio.com. Had a little technical difficulties this morning, but we're good to go. Uh, my guest today is Colonel Carl Skip Bell, the anole gay bomber. The B-29 bomber Nola Gay dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima on August 6, 1945. That was one man-made disaster. Apparently, there was one other man-made disaster. Skip, you want to tell us what that was? That was me. That was me. And <laughs> yes, that's so there's two man-made disasters in one day. That was the day you were born, right? Yes, sir. All right. Tell us about your early life, Dave. Okay, so I was uh, I was born in Decatur, Georgia, at Emory Hospital. Um, my dad was a career, actually, uh, overseas um, at that at that point uh, in the Philippines, um, and my mom and I joined him later. I guess when I was about a year old um in the philippines um uh, th- you know that was kind of a harbinger of things to come for our pretty much our whole life um uh, my mom uh was was really the anchor of the house and my dad was um uh, was a was a career soldier and got got sent where the army sent him and and uh, uh and so that was kind of we we were we were nomads i guess for lack of a better <laughs> term we, we moved That's around right. a lot and saw a lot of the world. Skip, uh, what we're going to do on this first segment, because we're a little bit behind uh, due to some technical difficulties, but uh, let's move on to, uh where'd you go to college? I went to North Georgia College in Dahlonega, Georgia, um, and I graduated in uh, June of 1967. Okay. where were you stationed the first time? Uh my first duty station was Fort Jackson, South Carolina. And I was, I had to go on active duty immediately after graduating. Uh, and so I didn't actually go to my basic course until August, but I went into the army in June as a second lieutenant armor. And I was sent to Fort Jackson for two months to push uh, trainees. And, you know, it was kind of funny that Trainees had more time in the army than I did, but, but they didn't know it, and, and I didn't tell them. So I was sort of uh, posing as an officer for the first couple of months. But it was good duty, and and uh, and I learned a lot. Well, very good. Uh, tell us a little bit about your early army experiences and training. Okay. Um, well, as I say, I was at Jackson for a couple of months with trainees, and then I went to Fort Knox, Kentucky, for uh, armor officer basic school. Uh, it was interesting because my basic school normally would be nine weeks, but it was cut back to six weeks because my whole class was regular Army officers, and they thought we would be more highly motivated. Uh, which I thought was really stupid, but, but that's what they did. And every class started out with, uh, this is normally a eight hour block of instruction, but you're going to get it in six. Uh, so when you get to your unit, talk to your platoon sergeant and he'll show you how to do this. I mean, that was really pretty much the way that they, they portrayed it. So while I was in, uh, in armor school, I volunteered for ranger school. And uh, I went there immediately after finishing my basic course. Uh, as I say, basic school for me was six weeks. Ranger School was eight weeks and five days, and they didn't cut any of it back for for any reason. And uh, so I by the time that was all over with, which was in December of uh, nineteen sixty seven I felt a whole lot more confident as an infantryman than I did as a as a tanker, even though my basic branch was armor. How, how tough was Ranger School for you? Um, for me, it was hard. Um, I, I went in uh in pretty good physical condition. I thought I weighed about 167 pounds, and uh, and when I got out of it, I weighed 136 pounds. Um, so it was, a you know, it was a good, good weight loss, good weight loss school, I guess, but it was, it was wonderful training. I, you know, I wouldn't trade a thing in the world for it.
2: And I, I can think understand it that
1: probably, it probably kept me from doing something stupid later in Vietnam. So, yeah. All right. We're going to our first break, uh, skip after that, we're going to get to your first tour in Vietnam. So stand by okay. for just a couple of minutes. Okay. Thank you. Okay.
2: Good morning, uh, this is David Moxley and the Classic Car Show and uh, we've got a great job to do right now and that's welcome a new advertiser to the Classic Car Show. And many of you have seen their trucks on the road as well as know and have used them over the in the past. And it's, um, we've got uh, Steve Capra on the line with us and he's with McAllister's Transportation Group. And, um, Steve, how are you doing today?
0: Morning, David. I'm fine. How about yourself?
2: Just fine. And tell us something about uh, what you do as well as uh, what makes you all stand out from everybody else.
0: Sure. Uh, First of all, I'd like to uh, thank you for for the time and the opportunity to sponsor and partner with such a a great group. You guys, for what you stand for, uh, is right in line with uh, the mottos and uh, the mantra of our company as well. Uh, I'm, my title is Vice President of Sales and Business Development. I'm responsible for all sales throughout the United States, uh, myself and my team. Uh, and what we do as a company is we provide enclosed transportation to the automobile industry. Uh, and that's straight down from the OEMs through snowbirds and personal moves and our favorite stuff to do of of all that is uh, the collector car market Uh, we're fully involved with the amelia islands uh, pebble beaches and all of the major shows throughout the united
1: states
2: you know and i have heard nothing but good things about you all and we certainly do appreciate it how do people get a hold of you and um, we'll go from there
0: Sure. You can uh, reach us a couple different ways. The easiest way is if you're uh, web-savvy, you can go to McAllister's, and that's dot com, and you can see a whole layout on on what we do as an organization. And there's a web form there that you can send in and request a quote for a transport move, or you can call our 800 number, and that's 800-748-3160, and, David, I don't give this number out to many people, but I'm going to give it out to you and to your viewers. Uh, they can call my direct cell line as well, and that's 609-960-6397. And uh, just give us a call. We're here to serve you uh, and here to uh, to make everything happen for you folks.
2: Steve, thank you, and we look forward to a long partnership and friendship with you all, with you and McAllister, so we uh thanks for being a part of america's web you're listening to
0: america's web radio on the americas broadcast com. thank you for
2: listening
1: okay we're back with colonel carl skip bell my brother from vietnam and also a personal friend skip uh when was your first tour of duty in vietnam um i went to vietnam in february of 1969 uh after ranger school I went to Germany for one year of what was supposed to be a two and a half year tour and got curtailed um and sent uh, sent to Vietnam. So I got there in uh, in February of nineteen sixty nine and I was assigned to the first squadron, fourth cavalry of the first infantry division. Um I I got there as a lieutenant, the first lieutenant And, uh, my first assignment was as a armored cavalry platoon leader, uh, in A Troop, 1st Squadron, 4th Cav. And what, what did, what was your duties? What did you do during that tour? Well, in that, that, well, as a platoon leader, I had, uh, three tanks and and seven armored personnel carriers and a total of 44 people, including myself and and we were basically uh, we went hunting for Charlie and Charlie went hunting for us and uh we you know we were because we had so much firepower uh we were sort of a a ready reaction force for the infantry units in the division if if they made contact and and we could get there in a, in a timely manner we would we would back them up Uh, and then we also ran convoys and, and did stuff, you know, did, did that kind of thing. But we were, we were essentially either hunters or hunted, depending upon the situation. Um, I did that platoon leader job for about four months and then I got promoted to captain and, uh, I was made a staff officer on the squadron staff. I was the, the S four, the logistics officer. And I did that for about six weeks and one of the cavalry troop commanders got killed and, uh, and I got tapped to go back out and take, uh, take that cavalry troop. Uh, I think the reason was because the unit was making a lot of contact at that time and the the squadron commander wanted somebody that had been in the field and kind of knew how the unit operated and I was really the junior captain in the squadron, but i I did have you know four months of field time, so uh he put me back out there and that's what I did right. the rest of the rest of that tour was uh, command a cavalry troop so what i what it sounds like to me you were setting up ambushes or you were either getting ambushed. is that correct? Well, I mean, we did do ambushes uh we did what was called reconnaissance force. Which was basically moving, you know, moving around the, the terrain, busting jungle or whatever it happened to be, uh, looking for base camps or looking for the bad guys. Uh, but we did, yeah, you know, we did do ambushes. Uh, we did run convoys and of course convoys got ambushed. And if we happened to be doing that, then, uh, uh you know, when the hit, when the convoy got hit, uh then of course we would we would uh fight back uh generally speaking when we were running convoys we'd have the squadron would have one troop in the convoy itself because uh, these are all logistics type convoys going between base camps um, they would have one troop in the convoy and then one troop as the ready reaction force and if the convoy got hit the troop that was in the convoy would move it on through the ambush position as soon as possible, and the ready reaction force would move into uh, against the people that that did the ambushing. So, skip it was, when uh, I when, go yeah, ahead. Skip, I re- That's all right. When I wrote your story, I remember you saying that you wrote on top of your your uh, equipment, the tanks or, or the armored personnel carriers. Uh, tell us why you rode on top, and also the, the dangers. What you feared most—the uh, rocket-propelled grenades. Tell us a little bit about this. Yes. Okay. Well, yeah. We—I thought it was a little odd when when I first got there. All the troops were sitting on top of the tracks, and I asked about that, and they said, "Well, here's the thing. You don't want to be in one when it either gets hit with an RPG or with a mine." Um, and so, uh, you know, we, it was weird, but we took our chances with bullets, uh, rather than, uh, cause if you were in, if you were in one of those armored personnel carriers and it was hit with an RPG, uh, that RPG would go through an armored personnel carrier like a knife through hot butter and anybody inside was, was dead, uh, or, or badly maimed. So that was what we did, and then of course, um, if you hit a mine in one of those uh, armored personnel carriers, that was that was kind of grim too. Um, The only the only person that actually uh, rode in the track itself was the driver, and 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 those you know a lot of times they were the ones that were hurt pretty bad. But yeah, Mm -hmm. I was scared to death of RPGs. (laughs) <laughs> uh, one of the things that I, I noticed about uh if we were ready reacting to an ambush, what we usually would do was get on line and charge the ambush. And, and I noticed that most of the RPGs were going at the tanks, and the ones that weren't going at the tanks were going at my vehicle because I had two antennas on top of it, and all the other vehicles only had one. So the bad guys knew that was a leader track, and uh, so anyway, I, that uh, the funny thing about the RPG is that it it moves slow enough to where you can see it, but it moves too fast to do anything about it. You know, it's just <laughs> all right. Uh, uh, Skip, tell me something about the the RPG against a tank. Now, I think a tank had better defense, but uh, or yeah. protection but they could see the put yeah, a tank, a tank, a tank had thicker armor and and a lot of times an RPG would just explode against the side uh you know or against the, or the the armor especially if it hit in the front or it would bounce off it would literally ricochet uh but if they shot it from the side of the tank especially in among the in the suspension system uh the armor was thin there and it would um uh, It could penetrate, and the the RPG works on a shape charge principle, which is probably, anyway, it's basically, it concentrates the force of the blast against one point, and it literally burns a hole through, you know, through the armor, and then once it gets inside, it it just kind of splays metal from the tank or, or from the armored personnel carrier. All over the inside, so you know it's um, um, a tank was a better place to be if there was RPGs flying around than an armored personnel carrier, but it wasn't that much better. Well, it sounds like the the armored personnel carriers just lacked almost total the de- defense against a RPG. There was there not yeah, any they way did. to? Wow. Uh, okay. What, what were the lessons learned? From the experiences uh, during your first two? you know um, I I think that 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 tour proved a lot of the leadership training that I got in Ranger School. Um, you know they taught us you know, always lead from the front, uh, always eat last, um, you know don't expect your troops to do anything that you wouldn't do or couldn't do. And and you know and of course soldiers know that they, I mean soldiers know when you know when leaders are are uh, are willing to take the same chances that they are and uh, and it's it's kind of a weird deal they start protecting you after <laughs> after a while because uh, they because they you know because they know you know that you have their best interest at heart and uh, you know and I mean I never. I never, in fact, to this day, I'm not over some of the people that we lost. But it, 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 um, you know, it's just uh, it, it, it's you have to you have to sometimes tell people to do stuff that might get them hurt, and sometimes it does. And and you know, when you're 23, 24 years old and doing that, you grow up real quick. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, Skip, we're going to our next break, and what we'll cover when we come back is what you did when you came home from Vietnam and what got you back for your second tour. So stand by for a couple okay. minutes, okay? Thank All you, right. Sir. I'll be here.
0: The America's Brought <laughs> Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and we got a loaded show for you guys today. The last...
2: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, I am Roger B., host of the Locked and Loaded Show on America's Web Radio. Join me live every Tuesday at 1500 for the best in gun news, gun products, and gun politics.
1: If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com.
0: Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, You need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on americaswebradio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the americasbroadcastnetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Which is the only physician led healthcare think tank in the country. Um, the work that we do is, uh, absolutely essential. No time more important than right now. So so please go to our website at Uh, www.d. Number four. PC Foundation.
1: I went to uh, a school. For captains, it was called the, the career course or the advanced course. And I was an armor guy, but I went to the infantry, uh, advanced course, uh, cause they kind of send some armor people to infantry and some infantry to armor. But anyway, while I was there, I, uh, I sat, uh, among a bunch of helicopter pilots. They, uh, they, the infantry school, they seat you alphabetically. And so it just happened that that all the guys around me or most of the guys around me were helicopter pilots. And, um, I noticed that they had a lot of money and they were, (laughs) you know, they did, did a lot of partying and, and were just, you know, pretty fun bunch to be around. And, uh, uh, and, and, you know, and, and they like, I, when I came back from Vietnam, I weighed 142 pounds, um, I still had, you know, leech bites on my legs and stuff. Anyway, I, and they they didn't have any of that. And uh and I thought, boy, you know what? I, that might be a that might be a, a better way to do this. Uh You know, white <laughs> pay and all that. And so yeah, I I went and took a, a flight physical, and and somehow I passed that, which is really pretty interesting because I couldn't hear worth a two. Um, and then, uh, uh, and I took a, they had an aptitude test and I took that and I decided, well, I'll try and go to flight school. And so that's what I did. Uh, after, after I got done with the advanced course, they, they sent me to flight school out in Fort Walters, Texas to learn to fly helicopters. And, uh, we did four and a half months at Fort Walters and then four and a half months at Fort Rucker. Uh, in Alabama, uh, where we learned to fly the Huey and did a little instrument training. And and, um, uh, and then I lucked up and got a Cobra transition out of uh, flight school. And uh, so I, I did that. And then, uh, of course, they sent me back to Vietnam again. Okay. How would you rate your Army flight training? It was great. Uh, one thing about, about the army, you know, they can, you can break a helicopter and they've got another helicopter, you know, as opposed to <laughs> if you go to a, a civilian flight school, you know, they're going to try and, and, uh, and try and save their aircraft if they can. And I, I don't mean that the army didn't, but the army was really big on making sure that you knew how to do the emergency procedures. And one of the emergency procedures in a helicopter is auto-rotation. If, if you lose your engine, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, a, hel- a helicopter can, can do what's called auto-rotate. Um, and it's basically uh, you fly it to the ground and, and at the last minute pull up and make the aircraft think that it's climbing, but it's really not. But it slows the rate of descent and you land it. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, and usually if you're going to have a problem uh, doing that, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be close to the ground when you have the problem. And so the a lot of civilian flight training in helicopters, you never do an auto rotation all the way to the ground. In the Army, we did them all the way to the ground and, and we did forced landings all the way to the ground and, you know, flying without hydraulics and all kinds of different things, and so they, they you know, that you really were pretty confident by the time you finished that that you could could take care of, you know, that you could survive whatever goes on with it, in an aircraft. So I really appreciated that about flight school. Uh, well, the auto the rot- David, that, I mean, um, I'm sorry, uh, Skip, Skip, auto rotation, Skip, sorry, Skip. The the auto rotation sounds like a controlled crash, basically well you know, yeah I guess you could say that's what it is um, you know when you lose your engine uh, you're gonna fall and <laughs> yeah. so the trick is uh, y- you know y- you've got the, the wind coming up through the rotor blades and 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 that keeps those rotor blades going and that slows your rate of descent and and you can uh, you can set up a certain airspeed on the aircraft uh and 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 basically fly it to a, you know, try and find yourself a fairly flat place to land and then at, at the bottom of the uh at the bottom of the auto rotation, uh like the last hundred feet, you start slowing your forward speed, which makes the aircraft think it's climbing but it's not, but it's it's falling slower. And then it, at the bottom, um the last 15 feet, you pull in all the pitch you've got on your rotor blades and zero out your forward speed, and 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 theoretically, you'll just go to the ground softly or fairly softly. And sometimes you do, and sometimes you don't. <laughs> uh, but it, but think, that's uh, that's how it's supposed to work. Yeah, Skip, I believe most people believe that if the main rotor blade on a helicopter stopped turning. That that uh, chopper is just going to nosedive into the ground because I hear so many, uh, choppers going, like news uh, choppers going down. Um, but I don't, I think very few people know about this, uh, auto rotation. And, uh, thank God you guys had it because we, our casualties would have been much, much higher. Yeah. If that, if the, if the rotor blades stop turning, which they, which they don't unless the transmission takes a hit. You know, if you lose all the oil in your transmission due to a bullet or something, then uh, if that rotor blade stops you, you know, the helicopter has all the glide characteristics of a brick. Um, <laughs> so it's, it, you know, but if, if, if the engine quits, but you still have a good transmission and, and, uh, nothing is interfering with the rotor blades, then just the air going through them is going to keep them turning, which yeah. is, which is good. Yeah, Skip, let me ask you this. You, uh, um, you went from the Hueys, oh, something's... <laughs> Alright. Ah, I see, we got some noise in the background. That's okay. You went from, uh, God, can you turn that off? Right, I'm sorry, say sure again? That's okay. You went from the Hueys to the Cobras. Uh, you were avoiding Cobra snakes on the ground and then flying Cobra gunships. Uh, tell us about the difference between the Huey and the Cobra and what you thought about each chopper. Well, um, the you know, the Cobra was really kind of a, 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 a high, for that, for that time, it was, it was, it was a high speed aircraft. Uh, I mean, it, it, uh, it had a—you uh, could get up to 220 knots in a Cobra in a dive. Um, and, you know, it was very narrow. It was like three feet wide. Uh, the pilot and the co-pilot didn't sit beside each other like they do in a Huey. The co-pilot sat in the front seat, and the pilot sat in the back seat. The co-pilot was responsible for manning a turret gun. Uh, in the front that either was a minigun or a grenade launcher or a combination of the two. The pilot sat in the, the back, the back seat above, kind of behind and above the guy in the front and, and the pilot was responsible for shooting the rockets and, and the pilot actually had real live controls, uh, real live cyclic and collected the, uh, the guy in the front had a, had a kind of a little uh a cyclic on one side and a collective on the other and, and you, you'd actually learn to fly it that way but it it was it was it was just different um, you know and the missions were different of course the the cobra was designed to you know kill people and break things and and the Huey could be used for all manner of of uh, of missions to include you know, putting troops on the ground and doing resupply, you know, carrying stuff in and out, doing medical evacuation. The Huey was um, um, a multi-mission aircraft. Um, I personally preferred flying the Huey to the really? Cobra because the Cobra, yeah, you know, the Cobra, um, we spent a lot of time in a Cobra making circles in the air, you know, looking for a target or covering a scout you know, when he's little, in a little aircraft, uh, you know, it was real exciting when you did a target attack, uh, but target attacks were few and far between in many cases. Whereas right. with the Huey, you had, uh, you know, you, you, you had different missions every day and, right. and uh, you, you know, you had to, you, for me anyway, I, I had to do a lot more thinking uh as a you know as a pilot in command of a Huey than I was in a Cobra in a Cobra I, I was always the guy in the front seat uh the unit that I went to initially in Vietnam I was flying Cobras but I was only there for 2 months before the unit that unit went home and I went to right. another unit and started flying Hueys so right. you yes. know my time in a Cobra go ahead I'm sorry no when the when did you go back to Vietnam? Uh, I went back to Vietnam in uh, February of 1972. So that was right, right, right there at the last. We were winding down at that time. Oh, yeah. Well, that was the problem. Well, I say it was a problem. Uh, the first unit that I went to when I got back um, was to an Air Cavalry troop flying Cobras, which is what I wanted to do uh we were there we were just down in the Mekong Delta. uh I was in that unit for about two months, um, and they got orders to go back to the states and This is what was happening all over the place at that time. Units were being pulled out and sent home or just being deactivated so uh but I didn't have enough time, even though I was a second tour guy. Uh, I didn't have enough time on that tour to go home with that unit. So when they left and went home, I went to another unit, uh, and started flying Hueys. And, and that's what I did, uh, w- with that unit. Uh, so, but it was good. I mean, in terms of, of experience, you know, I, I did get to sp- spend some time with the Cobras and I did get to spend some time with the Hueys. So, it was, um, you know, from that perspective, it was good for me. I thought, as an aviator. Yeah. Now the Delta was was. I don't think we ever secured the Delta. Uh, that was the uh, the haven for the VC and the North Vietnamese. Were you engaged in very uh, in '72? I know we were winding down, but were you engaged in much combat in that last year of the war? A uh, pretty good bit, actually, because the uh you know the, the in, in the spring of 1972 uh there was something that happened called the Easter Offensive, and yeah, yeah. uh North Vietnam basically invaded South Vietnam with tanks and and all kinds of stuff, and and most of the the heavy fighting was up north, was up at in I Corps, you know, up around the DMZ and. Uh, in I Corps and then to a lesser extent in II Corps. In the Delta, the main people we were dealing with were, uh, Viet Cong main force units, but, but by that time, most of the Viet Cong units were being manned by North Vietnamese soldiers that had come down and were kind of put into the Viet Cong, uh, units. Yeah. Um, one of the things that, that happened during that time was that the, uh, the North Vietnamese and the, and the Viet Cong introduced a shoulder fired heat seeking missile called the SA-7. And this thing was bad news for helicopters. Mm-hmm. Uh, what it, what it tended to do was when it hit you, it would sever the tail boom from the, uh, from sure. the rest of the fuselage. And no if you were alt- following. No, no auto rotation. That's no auto rotation. No, right? no, no no. no <laughs> you just, you just sort of twisted on down and, and, uh, I mean, that was, you know, it was, it was a long ride and you knew what was going to happen at the end and it wouldn't Uh, so that yeah. was, they, they brought, you know, that, that more sophisticated anti-aircraft. Uh, weapons down and, and, uh, and we, a lot, we took a lot of casualties as a result of that. Or yeah, that yeah, they and had, the they, other anti-aircraft that they had. They, yeah, they, you know, they, they had also good, brought down, yeah, they, had good uh, they also aircraft. brought down radar yeah. control stuff too. So. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. You no, know, it, it was deadly right there at the last. Uh, they've come down Ho Chi Minh Trail with all kinds of weapons. Uh, careful yep. going to our last break we'll be back in just a couple minutes okay okay all right Thanks
2: sir. ladies and gentlemen boys and girls of all ages i am roger b host of the locked and loaded show on america's web radio join me live every tuesday at 1500 for the best in gun news gun products and gun politics
1: if you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of too. Learn more at GoArmy.com.
2: Hey, folks, this is Victor Armendares with the On Point with Victor show. You ever find yourself wondering if you're getting the truth or can you find the truth? Well, don't fear. Tune in every Tuesday, 2 to 3, right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show, where I won't sugarcoat a thing. I'm going to tell you how it is.
0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Okay, we're back with uh, Carl Skip Bell, a chopper pilot from Vietnam. He was also in the infantry, a uh, personal friend of mine. I love this guy to death. Skip, I want to discuss something that uh, was real touchy. And I know as a combat soldier on the ground, you came into contact quite a bit with Agent Orange. Tell us about that. Yeah, we did. Uh, we, my first tour, the area of operations that we had in the 1st Infantry Division was between, um, Saigon and the Cambodian border. Uh, and then also to the north and northwest of Saigon. And that was the most heavily defoliated area, uh, in South Vietnam or so I was told. And uh, because of that, um, you know, a lot of the people, and of course I keep up with a lot of the folks that I was with that tour, um, a, a lot of folks now are, you know, either have had cancer or diabetes or some other uh, infirmity uh, related to Agent Orange exposure um and uh, you know we well, uh, like I say, we operated that we operated in in jungle that had been defoliated and then grown back, actually. Um, and we had, you know we were exposed to that a lot. and uh, it's interesting there the CAV troop that I commanded, there were five officers in that troop. Uh, and four of us have had either cancer or type two diabetes or both, uh, wow. from, from that, from Agent Orange exposure. And, yeah, it, so and many it's, it's a similar percentage to the troops too that were, that were there. Yeah, so many of us, uh, were touched by Agent Orange, not so much me being in the Air Force, but the guys in the jungles and the rice paddies, uh, You guys carry around that Agent Orange dust on you for weeks at a time, right? Oh, yeah. Well, that was one of the things about being a field soldier is that you don't bathe a lot. And you don't change (laughs) clothes a lot. I mean, I went one time 22 days without changing clothes. Uh, I mean, you get seriously filthy. One thing good about it, though, the mosquitoes, it gave them a lot less, uh, you know, it gave them a lot more to have to sting through. (laughs) Uh, but it, you know, I mean, it it really, uh, you, you, you just really were filthy all the time. And, and, you know, and then if so, if, if let's say we were ambushing, um, and, uh, say, I don't know if you know what a Rome plow operation was, but it was a, it was our army engineers doing, using D8 tractors with big blades on them actually that were made in Rome, Georgia, actually. They were made in Cartersville, but um, uh no, I'm sorry, in Cedartown. But uh but anyway, it's knocking down jungle and then uh they would fly over that jungle that had been knocked down and and spray. Um, and this you know, the Air Force would be would do that and a lot of times we'd be laying out there in the along the edge of where the jungle had been knocked down. Waiting, you know, to to ambush the bad guys who would come along and plant mines along the edge of the Rome Plow cut so that, you know, the next time the Rome Plow came along, it would hit the mine. And, uh, so we would, we would be laying out there to ambush them doing that. And, uh, uh, you know, we get, we get sprayed. And of course we, we, we didn't know at the time. How bad it was, but I mean that stuff would stay on us for days um or weeks i guess but that that, uh, that that's bad now sh- uh, uh my friend, I think you're being a little bit modest about your in Vietnam you're still carrying around some shrapnel in your nose, are you not i am i am i actually yeah it's it's uh I've got a little tiny piece of shrapnel. That went into the septum of my nose that, uh, well, I wore some other shrapnel, went into other places, but it's, it's, um it's gone, but the shrapnel in my nose is still there. And, uh, uh, it, it makes for some interesting dental visits, you know, the first time, <laughs> cause when they x-ray, you know, they, they just will say, Hey, you know, you got a piece of metal in your nose. And I'll say, yeah, I know I was there when I got it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, how'd you get hit, uh, Skip? Uh, What caused that shrapnel in your nose? What happened? Well, uh, another one of the troops stepped on what was either a a, a booby trap, sixty millimeter mortar round, or a hand grenade. We weren't really sure, and he took most of it. um, And uh, you know, we were we were actually our Track vehicles were parked side by side. We were moving through an area and the lead platoon had, had hit some, had hit some, well, they found a a hooch up there and they were checking it out and, uh, they hit some booby traps up ahead of us and I was, uh, jumping off my track with my radio to go see what was going on up front. And the first sergeant had a rule that whenever I got off the track, one of the troops got off you know to keep me from getting lost i guess but anyway um a kid named j d. Davis jumped off of his track and he actually landed on this this booby trap, and it went off mm. and uh and I took some shrapnel in the face and 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 uh Davis took most of it in his legs and uh It was funny though because we had I had already when that lead platoon hit the first booby trap I called for a medevac um, and was talking to uh, it was a helicopter came up on our on our frequency and he said you know he was he was going to get somebody somewhere else but he would divert over and pick up my wounded which I thought was great. so I'm talking to him as I'm jumping off the track, and then Davis jumps off in his and he hits that booby trap. so there's this explosion and my you know my push to talk my my hand mic is still open and and then I hit it blew me back into the track and then I'm sitting down on the ground. and when I let go of the push to talk, the pilot said, "Are you hit?" And I said, yeah, I think I am because I was bleeding, you know, uh, from my face. I didn't know how bad. And, and, uh, he said, yeah, I thought you were. Your voice just went up about eight octaves. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> I guess so, man. Well, we're glad you got back there, Skip. Uh, also, uh, a little weird thing happened to you, uh, landed to get some, uh, what's called a hot refuel and you looked across the field and saw a bunch of warehouses uh tell us what was in those warehouses oh yeah well my, this is my second tour and we were uh, this was I was in the air cab flying a cobra and we got a mission to escort uh some ships going up the mekong river uh between south vietnam and phnom penh cambodia uh, at that time, the road from Sihanoukville in Cambodia had been cut by the Khmer Rouge, and so the only way to get supplies to Phnom Penh, which was under siege at that time, was right. by boat. So there was a, there was a place midway between South Vietnam and Phnom Penh on the Mekong River called Nick Long, and it was a ferry site, but it was also a place where we could refuel, because we were running up and down the length of that convoy in the cobras and so uh, th- we sat down on the refuel pad and the guy in the back of the aircraft got out to do the refueling and I was sitting in the front holding on to the controls because we were we were hot refueling and I looked across the, uh, the this what looked like a soccer field actually and there was some huh. warehouses over there and they were you could the warehouses were basically roofs on stilts, uh, but you could see what was in them, and, and it was pallets of of cans of Coca-Cola, and I mean, just pallets and pallets of Coca-Cola, and I'm thinking to myself, I am literally in the middle of nowhere, and here's I can get Coca-Cola if I want it. I mean, it's just crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so somebody was hoarding Coca-Colas over there. That's that's Amazing. Uh, I guess, I, you know, I, 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 don't know how it got there. You know, it's kind of like the turtle on the fence post do not know how it got there but anyway. <laughs> so, uh, that, but yeah, well, that, I, know, I thought that was uh, kind of interesting. I know we, uh, uh, being intelligence, we, we captured a couple of Russian trucks off the Ho Chi Minh trail, flew them back to base and we were going through their first aid kits and they were full of Johnson & Johnson band-aids. So, <laughs> uh, it's, it's yeah. amazing, uh, about that war. Uh, it just, just amazing. Skip, we only have a couple of minutes left. Uh, just tell us a little bit about when you got back from Vietnam. I know you went into the reserves and you also ended up in Saudi Arabia. Can you condense that into a couple of minutes? Yeah. Well, after I got back from Vietnam, uh, I, I met the lady that that I was married to for forty six years, and we lived out at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, for a while, and then hey, we don't have a uh, got selected for graduate up. school, which got us back to it to Atlanta, and um, I did that. And her, while we were there, her mom uh, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, and when the army decided they wanted to move me to Germany, uh, I I couldn't go. I, you know, my wife wanted yeah. to be close to her mother, and so uh, I resigned my commission, uh, my regular army Eight commission, and up. went into the reserves, and I stayed in the reserves for about 17 years, and part of that uh, was uh, when Desert Shield started,